sister Joy, Bernardo, and Billy O'Kara are known for their messages of social consciousness, inspiration, and empowerment. In addition to their original poetry, the celebration will also feature an exhibit by Washington area visual artist Jason Keene and conclude with a book signing. This event is free and open to all ages. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Welcome to On the Margin with E. Ethelbert Miller. My guest today is Elizabeth Waraksa. Elizabeth Waraksa is the author of Female Figurines from the Moot Precinct, Context and Ritual Function. She is also the Associate Dean at George Washington University's Libraries and Academic Innovation. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Ethelbert. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I just fell in love with you back in October. So this is just a nice way of continuing our conversation. Um, and I want to go back. Um, well, actually, I want to say before we to begin our discussion, you're joining us um, while we're having our winter fundraising drive. And so we're going to be encouraging people to make a donation to the station and asking people to call 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Let's go back to your work at John Hopkins University. When you were at John Hopkins University, you obtained a doctorate in Near Eastern Studies with a specialization in Egyptian art and archaeology. How important in 2024 is the field of archaeology? I think it's still incredibly important here in 2024. Even um, though you're working at a library. <laughs> even though I'm working at a library, because to me, it's all part of a continuum of understanding our human past and organizing the information for the future. So cultural heritage to me spans everything from archaeology to libraries to art museums, oral histories. It's our human history is so vast and so rich. So I think it tells us about ourselves and it helps us prepare others in the future to learn about our lives now. Okay. If I would, if I had met you and you were 15 years old, um, did you, was this a path that you knew you were on? Were you collecting rocks or something in the yard <laughs> with me? I sure was. You're right on, Ethelbert. As a child, after a rainstorm, my parents say I was out back digging in the mud. I was looking for any cool looking rock. Uh, that's probably how it started. And then really in seventh grade social studies, like so many kids, I got inspired to learn about the ancient Near East. I learned about King Tut and Howard Carter. I learned about ancient Mesopotamia. So by the time I was 15, I was trying to write as many papers as I could about ancient Egypt. And I was already so, interested in archaeology. Well, so you, you knew what you were going to do before you went off to college then? I sure did. I was really fortunate to have a passion and to have a family that encouraged me to follow that passion. Well, tell us about your family. Were, were there, what did your father and mother do that put you in, on this path? Yep, my parents were middle school teachers. My mother was an English as a second language teacher. My father taught fifth grade mathematics. Um, they both had master's degrees in linguistics, and they really believed in lifelong education and really set me up. I'm so grateful for um, also my lifelong learning. So mm -hmm. when I came home and asked if archaeology was a thing you could still do in the 90s, you know, they said, yes, you could study that in college. And mm -hmm. they encouraged me to, to identify colleges that offered archaeology as a major or a minor or had a museum on campus. And back in the day, you wrote away for college catalogs. Mm -hmm. And they helped me do that and understand what I could study. You know, when, when I was um, at Howard University, you know, I would meet a, a number of young people and they wouldn't say archaeology. They would say, oh, I'm interested in cultural anthropology, mm -hmm. you know, and I was wondering in terms of um, the, the connection between the two fields. Sure, absolutely. Um, archaeology is very much based in the dirt, if you will. It's very much um, excavation focus. Cultural anthropology can span um, many other types of human inquiry. It might be um, interviews. It might be studying um, religious traditions. Um, it's very much that anthro, that focus on people. So whereas archaeology might uncover artifacts to do with animals or plant life and also people, cultural anthropology is so much based on, um, on our human um, trends and experiences. Mm -hmm. So they're absolutely related. Um, would encourage folks to learn about both because they really intersect. 
Now you might recall when we first met, I was I would say, you understand hieroglyphics? <laughs> you know that, that that's immediately when I said, okay, I I I definitely have to get you on my show because you, you know you don't bump into somebody, you know, like I'm into hieroglyphics. But talk about how difficult that is in terms of learning. Sure, absolutely. It was required for my doctorate um, to learn all phases of the ancient Egyptian language. So um, ancient Egyptian persisted for thousands of years. And we always start off learning what we call Middle Egyptian. It's kind of like learning church Latin. It is the fullest form of the ancient Egyptian language, which is an Afroasiatic language. It's related to modern Arabic and Hebrew. It has all the grammar and vocabulary and rules of, of any other language. Is, is, it as, is, is it as difficult as Sanskrit? Oh, yes, I would say it's as difficult as Sanskrit or learning uh, any other non-Western language that is also in a non-Roman alphabet. So hieroglyphs have the, the birds and the plants and the shapes we're familiar with, but there's also script forms and Coptic, which is ancient Egyptian written in Greek letters, um, which is really handy because then you have vowels. So in the other forms, you don't have vowels indicated in the writing. I would say it took me about three years to get to fluency with ancient Egyptian. And I was really privileged and, 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 to teach and, and, it later. And, and, and who were you talking with? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's you get a facility by reading it. So you become uh, in dialogue with the ancient Egyptians through reading. Um, we have a way to pronounce it out loud in our So you classes, don't, you don't, you but... don't, you don't get into like a, a Lyft or Uber and have a conversation with your driver. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I mean, believe me, I wish I could interview some ancient Egyptians about their everyday life. Um, it's mostly, you know, a language reading facility. Facility. Yeah. Well, you know, going back to when you were digging in the mud behind the house, um, did you have an affinity for language? I know some people like language comes very easy to them. I would say I didn't originally have an affinity for language. Um, I started taking French in middle school and loved that um, and struggled a little bit more when I started learning German. Um, but I really somehow dug into ancient Egyptian and just found it. It um, I I loved it. I could I could get into it. So, um, so was yeah. there a, was there a teacher that that pulled you into e Egyptology, or was it just something from you know movies and things of that sort that you had an interest in? Uh, yeah, it was uh, some of the great social studies. Mrs. Oaken really got me into it. Um, and then in my undergraduate and graduate school, which I both did at Johns Hopkins, it was my professors, Betsy Bryan and Richard Jasnow, um, who really inspired me and, and uh, led me all the way through to my PhD. Oh, you know. Um, Elizabeth uh, Wawaska, um, when we look around the world today, uh, there are many wars taking place. Um, we hear each day about the loss of human life. Um, but how concerned should we also be about the destruction of cultural artifacts in countries like Syria, Iraq, Egypt, and Israel? It's, it's hugely concerning. And you know, to the greatest extent possible, we should preserve our cultural heritage institutions. Um, I, I know that there are cultural heritage professionals who do work, for example, with the military to try to identify sites um, that should not be affected, if at all possible, um, because that's our human record. And, and so many of these primary resources are irreplaceable. Um, we cannot replace a papyrus or, or a, a mud brick tablet um, that was written 4,000 years ago. Um, if it's been scanned digitally, well, that's one way to have a digital surrogate to read it into the future um, using the technologies we have. But um, these, these one-of-a-kind primary resources are so valuable and truly irreplaceable. Mm. Did you have any contact with like UNESCO? I did not in my work. I, I didn't happen to. Um, but uh, of course, they're um, deeply engaged in, in identifying and, and naming all the time new cultural heritage locations for posterity. Right. That's why I was concerned. I think it might have been during the Trump administration. We were talking about like, you know, pulling out of UNESCO and not providing mm. funds for it. But at mm. the same time, I think in terms of long term, like people like yourself doing the research that mm. that, that can set people back. Oh, for sure. And and UNESCO led the way in uh, making sure that the, the transport or the looting or the um, illegal trade of artifacts uh, should have been stopped in 1973. They're the ones who, who set forth uh, the regulations that we should all be following. Mm. Now, you were fortunate to go on uh, an archaeological expedition. This is, I guess, part of your research at John Hopkins. Uh, you know, uh, what is it like to be on an expedition? I mean, do you do you like pack up, a, you know, like a whip and the other things that you got to take, you know, I mean, you have a backpack. I mean, what 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 does it mean going on an expedition? Yeah, 
it's not very Indiana Jones exciting, (laughs) but it's extremely intensive as a, as a form of research. So um, I was fortunate to go on several excavations um, throughout my, my education. So in Italy, in Egypt and in Israel, and in each case, it was a little bit different. Um, Sometimes we look at it. Let's, let's back up. Let's back up. Yeah. Okay. So you sign up for the exhibition. How many, is it a team of people that you're part of? Always a team. So there's usually one or two directors, often uh, an American archaeologist director and a local in-country director, and then a team of undergraduates and graduate students typically um, going together, maybe um, 20, 30 or so folks who get up very early in the morning. (laughs) Okay. So so let's let's go back. (laughs) Okay. Let's go back in. So you have these 20 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, are you having meetings in terms of, say, what exactly are you going to be doing when you before you get out into the field? Yes, it's typically directed by um, the director's research project or research interests. And we, before we go out, we look at um, the the grids, the plans, the aerial photographs, what has been done before. We read all the literature of any previous excavation, and then we identify the areas we're going to focus on for that season. Season could be four to eight weeks or so. Um, And then we break off into typically smaller groups to excavate our trenches, which are usually five meters by five meters in size. Um, and there's now, a lot of documentation along the way. Now, when we talk talk about an expedition, uh, so I guess it's like tour of duty. Have you been on several expeditions, or did you go on just one expedition? I've been on several. I've been on. I've okay. been to three locations and about seven all all told. <laughs> what's What's the average length of a, of an expedition? About four weeks. About a month. About um, a month. Yeah, okay. and usually one day off a week. It's about six days a week uh, for a month. Mm-hmm. And when you take that month. Um, I'm assuming based on climate that there's certain months that you say, okay, we're not going because it's raining <laughs> or this is some sort of sand uh, storm. Um, right. How much How much is that? And how much does climate change change things in terms of um, conditions? What a wonderful question. Yeah, absolutely. It's changed a lot. And uh, for example, we had a rain day once in Egypt in Luxor, which had been practically unheard of in the lifetimes of the folks who had been there. So we, we needed to get off the site for the day. And that was really unusual. We took went in the winter when it was very nice and cool, uh, started the morning in fleece and ended up in a t-shirt. And it was, um, winter was a great time to work in Egypt, but we did have a rainstorm. Um, and when I worked in Israel, um, that was in the summertime. It was incredibly hot and humid and we had to take great care with our hydration practices and go from about five in the morning to one in the afternoon to keep ourselves healthy. Um, so sea level rise, um, changes in weather patterns, um, all of these things are, uh, really important for planning an expedition and staying safe and healthy mm-hmm. while you're on one. Mm-hmm. Do you have to have a, a number of different types of skills, you know, not just the academic skills, but actual practical skills, like, you know, like how to put something together or take something apart? Yeah, very valuable to be good at uh, photography, um, to have facility with different tools, facility with your iPad. I, I started off on expeditions keeping paper notebooks, and by then, uh, over the years, became iPad-based. Um, the ability to analyze pottery or bones, um, all of these are sort of subspecialties on an expedition. Very mm-hmm. valuable. Mm-hmm. What type of relationship um, does the John Hopkins University have to have in terms of, do you have to obtain permission in terms of like from the Egyptian government? Absolutely, there's always permission um, from the government. So um, our excavation at Johns Hopkins was facilitated through the American Research Center in Egypt, which worked with the uh, Ministry of Antiquities um, in Egypt. Um, so all the international digs in Egypt have the permission of the government and everything stays in Egypt since the 80s already. Um, no artifacts um, can leave the country. Okay, well, the same we we were dealing with the Egyptian government. We'll have to deal with WPFW right now. And so I'm going to mm-hmm. tell people that that you're listening to Elizabeth Wabraska, um, and she is the um, author of Female Figurines from the Moot Precinct Context and Ritual Functions. And we're talking about Egyptology this morning. We're also talking about supporting WPFW. So you might want to make a pledge if you have money. Um, the number here to call is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. We can't have programs like this program, which is very, I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> and so, you know, if you want to continue having these type of programs, um, please support WPFW 89.3 FM. Um, Elizabeth, let's get into um, your actual research. Um, the Moot Precinct uh, is located in Karnak. Talk about where that is. Um, 
um, what's been happening over there the last, you know, the last thousand years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the last couple millennia. Right. <laughs> be happy to. So the Karnak complex is a, a massive temple complex in modern day Luxor, Egypt and southern Egypt, um, ancient Thebes. Um, and there was a complex there um, dedicated to the goddess Moot um, that Johns Hopkins uh, has been excavating at for many years now. And I was fortunate to take part in, in that dig and that expedition. Um, and it was a complex in use over uh, many, many hundreds of years, and it, and it grew over time. So there's not just one temple there, but several. Um, and I was fortunate to work in different locations around this complex, which had a huge lake, a sacred lake uh, in a part of it. And um, I got to work at a gateway near the lake one season and then behind the lake in a production area in future seasons. Um, so I got to know this complex really well. It was um, dedicated to a goddess known uh, for her maternal nature in a way, for being the, the consort or the partner of the god Amun, who was the big god of Karnak. His temple was right next door. Um, there were boat processions that took place there. There were festivals of drunkenness that took place there. Before you get into the drug, <laughs> before you get into the drunkenness and stuff, let's yeah. let's stop right there and go back. Um, I turn on the radio. I'm I'm listening to you talking about Egyptology. I know nothing about you know. Only thing I know is like okay, I, I can recognize an onk, you know. <laughs> but but give us a, a very brief introduction in terms of saying what are the major gods that gods and gods are should know um location in terms of just a brief introduction so that when we get into the, the expeditions that you've been talking about at least i have some background so just provide us with a little thing that you need to know the basic facts absolutely uh let's talk about some basic facts so um there were major gods like osiris who was known for taking care of the dead major gods of amun like amun ra he was perceived as being in the sun uh take go, going across the sky during the day uh, we'll talk about the goddess mood we might talk about the goddess hathor she was a goddess very attached to women and women's needs um so a whole pantheon, it was a polytheistic religion, a whole pantheon of gods who were related to one another and took care of, you might think about like the natural world. They took care of the day-to-day, -day, kept the world in sync. That was very much the Egyptian worldview. And they made sure that the Nile River flooded every year. So an agricultural society. So this religion was very much about making sure every year the river would flood and deposit rich soil on the banks of the river. Every year the river would recede, planting could ensue, and there would be a harvest. So um, that's pretty much the basis. Um, and the, the temples that the ancient Egyptians built are out of stone, um, were meant to take care of these gods in their everyday life, to feed them, to bathe them, to wake them up, to sing to them, make sure that the gods were happy and, and uh, receiving all of their needs so that the universe could, could continue day in and day out. And um, maybe not everybody was allowed into the temples. It was for, reserved for um, royalty and for those who were assigned to work there in the priesthood. Um, but in and around temples, and uh, there were some gathering places and spots for your average Folks people, in the neighborhood people just, could, people just hang come. out, right? Yeah, just hang out, or you know, take a look, squint, and see catch a <laughs> catch a procession going by. And there were many um, festivals that took place outside temples as well. And that is mm -hmm. where folks could observe maybe a god in his boat, a statue of a god would cross the Nile for a particular mm. festival or funerals, of course, would have been seen by uh, everyone in the neighborhood. So there was a lot of lived religion in the neighborhood too. What what is what are, uh, when we look at your research? What is the time period that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at about um, 1550 BC, so uh, what we call the New Kingdom in our chronology of ancient Egypt, till about, oh, let's call it 600-500 BC, um, towards the end of the Pharaonic period, um, before um, Greek or Hellenistic rulers came to Egypt. So um, really what we might call the New Kingdom to the late period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk, um, Elizabeth, specifically about your, your research why did you focus on nude female figurines? I had always had an interest in the everyday life of ancient Egyptians. Really, I, I wanted to study something other than the kings and queens, something other than the 1%, if you will. I really want to know how folks engage in their everyday lives. Um, and the expedition I was on happened to uncover more than 40 nude female figurines uh, made out of fired clay. So I got to watch these come out of the soil 
Um, and they intrigued me. Um, is, is, that, is that, when you say that number, is that a good find? I mean, could you go out on an expedition and, and it's just like three pieces that you find? Yeah, I feel like 42 is a good number over the years <laughs> I was there. Uh, it was quantity enough that I thought, well, this was a, a fairly typical practice at this temple. This seemed like uh, it was telling us something. They, these figurines were activated or used at this temple complex. Uh, there were other kinds of figurines. We found you some animal figurines, but these nude female figurines really grabbed me. I've been interested in them for, for years in my religion classes. So to see them on an expedition, I got even more deeply engaged. Now you, I'm assuming that you, you're saying you're also looking, probably looking at fragments, right? Correct. So what intrigued me a lot about these figurines was every single one of those 42 was broken when we excavated them. And that's why the subtitle of my book includes the word context, because it's really important to me to dig into the fact that they were mostly found in trash and they were mostly found broken. And that was a, that's another message. That's another signal and trend that these figurines were discarded. They weren't kept throughout uh, a long period of time. They were used, broken and thrown away. How, how do you come to the conclusion? I mean, it seems as if you're finding fragments and it seems there must be a, a considerable degree of projection okay. and, and, and questioning like what if. So, mm -hmm. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you put the coursework puzzle together? Yeah, I, I had great guidance from my advisors on this. So I, I had to put it together in a couple different ways to make an argument about how these figurines were used. One was that they were very plainly found in trash, as we could see from the stratigraphy or the horizontal layers of the trenches we were excavating. They were very clearly out of their original context and in a place with other kinds of garbage, too. Um, and then I had to look into how they were made and how strongly uh, they were fired to be these very hard and difficult to break uh, clay pieces. And I thought, well, if you wanted to break these, you really had to make an effort. So um, I looked into the tensile properties of clay and how hot a kiln had to be to fire these and how difficult it would be to break them. Uh, was somebody, and, was some of these figures, were they broken in terms of during rituals? Yes, I definitely think they were broken during rituals because they were broken in the thickest part of the figure. They weren't broken accidentally. If you dropped one, they might lose a little nose or a toe. Um, but what I discovered is they were broken laterally, cleanly across the, the hip or thigh region, and you would really need to deliberately um, do that kind of breakage. Um, and they were they were painted red, too, um, more sometimes in multicolor. And that also led me to believe, well, this red had a meaning. Red in ancient Egyptian art can be good or bad. Um, and I suggest that they were used to absorb something negative, and that's why they were red. Why, why, why are they nude? I think they were nude because they were symbolic of good health. I think the image of a, a, a nude woman in ancient Egyptian art was representative of you're healthy, you're fertile, you could have children. It was very important in antiquity. So I'm, I'm assuming the men were unhealthy and that's why they don't show up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know because, you know, it's so curious. There, there are almost no nude, nude male figurines. Um, yeah. Is that a... Is that something where that's part two of your research? <laughs> could be, could be for sure. <laughs> I often think about what part two might be. Could be. Right. Could well, be. Well, well, how are the, um, you, you're talking about these rituals and um, I, I guess that some of these things are probably tied in with incantations. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was another aspect of my research was because we have a, a pretty voluminous textual record from ancient Egypt. What what did the text say about these figurines? And I was able to identify the word, the ancient Egyptian word or words used for these. And it seemed like they were using magical medical rituals. So I found mention of clave images um, to- So this gets back to your knowledge of hieroglyphics. Exactly. I was so, able to bring in the text and the image all so together. So I'm, I'm assuming now that because of your research, you probably have knowledge of certain special incantations that when you're at meetings at GW, you can just put a little curse on somebody. <laughs> I'll admit I'm a little superstitious. You're, you're, not, you're, not cutting, you're not cutting our library budget. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. I will say any incantation for funding that's needed. <laughs> well, you know, what, what, what I'm curious about, very curious about is... Um, you go out to these expeditions. You're, you're actually, you know, in the field. Mm -hmm. But you also, I think, being back in 2005, you spent a lot of time in the UK visiting museums. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, in terms of, you know, do you first go out into the field, or say, maybe the same way I asked you about preparing for the expedition, mm -hmm. uh, would you have had a different outlook on things if you went to the museums first? That's 
What a wonderful question. I think so. I think it was more important for me to be um, on the ground in context, watching the figurines uh, come out uh, of the soil in, together with other types of artifacts um, and to be in that temple day after day, uh, you know, really feel uh, the vibe there. Um, I think it would have been different just seeing figurines behind glass in a case. Um, something I noticed in my research when I did start going to the UK was there had been a tendency in the past to glue these broken figurines back together and present them as if they were intact or whole, or they were illustrated in books as if they'd never been broken. And mm -hmm. But because I'd been on a dig and I'd seen them come out in pieces, I thought, well, this is not actually telling the accurate story. These, these were not excavated uh, completely as complete figurines. They were excavated in pieces. Mm -hmm. So the museum doesn't always tell the story that I was able to, to determine from being mm. on the expedition. Mm. Well, Elizabeth Waraksa, uh, let me ask you a personal question because you're talking about being in these these temples. Um, are you, or will you consider yourself a religious or spiritual person so that when you're in these temples, you get a sense of, you know, they're speaking to me? <laughs> I think I didn't feel so much a spirituality as a curiosity, I uh -huh. guess I would say. Um, I, I've and continue to feel curiosity um, really about the human endeavor. And, and um, I think I was trying to put myself uh, in the shoes, to so walk a mile in the shoes of an ancient Egyptian around that temple. Um, and, and there is something to be said for being there when the sun comes up and then mm -hmm. spending six, seven hours on site and seeing sort of the course of a day, um, how it smells, how it sounds, uh, the, the birds, the clouds, um, just Get, getting into the the nature of it, I think I would say I, I felt uh, part of the natural world. That temple. Okay. Well, we, before we we take a a, a break, uh, like a minute break, I want to ask you one last question. Um, talking about Egyptology, and then when we come back, I'll ask you about your work at GW. Um, when we look at your focus on these female figurines, um, how much does gender studies influence your 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 work? It, it absolutely infused my work and influenced my work. Um, there was a strong tendency around the 90s to locate women in the archaeological record. Um, and there were a lot of um, theories put forward that these female figurines were made by women for women. There was almost like an overcompensation to, in the hope that these were women's objects about women's needs. And my research, in a way, sort of um, added to that, I'd like to think, um, expanded that, refined that. Um, they may have been made in workshops and they may have been made by men to a, a royal standard or a countrywide standard, but they absolutely uh, were pertinent to, to women's needs, to the wish for children, a successful birth, um, and they could also be used for headaches and stomach aches. So I really think they were just multifaceted, um, and I definitely, definitely leaned on the work of, of fe feminist scholars, gender studies, um, and the field of figurine studies. It's even an area of inquiry in, in itself. So I'm, I'm grateful for those who uh, published before me on objects like these. And I read about female figurines from all over the world as part of my dissertation. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a little break and go through our little ID. Um, this, you're listening to Liz Walraska. Um, she's um, the Associate Dean at George Washington University of Libraries and Academic Innovation. Um, the show's on the margin. My name is Ethel Britt Miller, the station's WPFW 89.3 FM. Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised, and yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. From February 4th through the 24th, we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our Winter Pledge Drive and ensuring that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. Okay, we're back on the margin with Elizabeth Baraksa. Um, the winter fundraising drive here at WPFW is going on. Uh, I can't see the screen, so I can't see exactly who's donating, but I know that you're donating, <laughs> okay? And you're calling, calling 202-588-9739. It's 
If you do make a donation and I don't acknowledge it, it's because I'm not looking at a screen where I can acknowledge it, but you know that you're, I always want to thank everyone for trying to reach a goal of 500 this morning. Okay. Um, we were talking to Elizabeth Baraksa. Uh, Elizabeth, um, let's move over and talk about your work at the Gelman Library at George Washington University. One would assume that because of all of what we talked about in the first half of the show, but Egyptology, that this is why you are sort of like over special collections. <laughs> uh, so, so talk about special collections over at um, at the Gelman Library. What's there? Um, what your responsibility is to the collection? Sure. Um, special collections, as we say in the library world, um, is where we have our rare books and archives. Um, so here at GW, we have a couple different areas we focus on in collecting. Um, we have a wonderful DC Poets collection, with which you're familiar, Ethelbert. We have the E. <laughs> Ethelbert Miller papers um, and, and the papers and, and recordings of um, many other um, luminaries here from Washington, D.C. We collect Washingtoniana, generally speaking, about the history of D.C., um, we also have an interesting transportation archive here. We have the WMATA photo collection from the construction of the DC Metro. Um, we also have uh, major collections from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Uh, mm -hmm. The labor history archives here are uh, growing and, and being built all the time. Um, and we have the National Education Association archives. So the biggest teachers union in the U.S. archives here as well. So we really focus in on, on labor, um, on D.C. history. Um, and other collections that maybe uh, alumni have donated to us. Um, we collect oral histories and we do oral histories to preserve the narratives and the voices uh, of those with stories to tell. Um, and indeed, this is um, an area that I work in now because to me, it's another part of cultural heritage. And these are primary sources and unique resources um, that we want to preserve and make accessible. And we're open to researchers um, from all over the world. Um, Come, come on down and, and uh, come use our archives. Well, my, my guest next week has been using your archives um, because my guest next week is Eden Raskin, the daughter of uh, Mark Raskin, who was the founder of the Institute for Policy Studies. And I know that she's, um, you know, making a film about her father mm -hmm. and has found the archives to be um, very, very helpful. But let me ask you this in terms of um, many universities don't have special collections, you know, um, and I was just wondering about the actual upkeep. Mm -hmm. What are so what are some of the needs in terms of of hiring specialists for those for those areas? Mm -hmm. um, how important is it to sometimes be an advocate for special collections when someone would say, "Well, um, how many people are going to use the special collections during the course of a year?" Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we we do constant advocacy and we have a wonderful team of librarians, archivists, staff members and digital services specialists who together um, do the work of processing archives. So when um, archives arrive, we do like to arrange them if we can into um, a logical manner. Maybe it's chronological, for examples. And we create what we call finding aids, the so research guides to those collections. And that's really intense intellectual work. That's um, preparing um, archival boxes that are acid-free that will be stored in a climate-controlled environment to ensure that these paper-based archives are accessible for the future. And then we have digitization specialists who also assist us with creating digital surrogates or archiving websites, uh, born digital resources, we call them. So um, we always want to make sure we have a robust team mm. uh, because we never stop collecting and, and we never stop um, meeting researchers' needs. We, we never know who's going to be coming in next, who has a, a documentary they're making or a film or a book they're writing and might need our collections. But we want to make sure it's, it's ready and available for them. And we want to get the word out about the collections we have. And there's many different ways to do that. Um, uh, we're really fortunate here to have a wonderful team and uh, to make you know, you know, You know, when you say that, you know, I, I was just wondering in terms of like, when I, I think of special collections, I, I think of, quote, outsiders coming in, you know, um, somebody working on a book, this and that. But, but you know, I, I know that I could be an undergraduate student, be at my institution and never go into the special collection because it doesn't really interact with me. How do you get more undergraduates interested in terms of using special collections and part of the, just writing a simple term paper? 
Yeah, great question. And undergraduates are our number one user base here at GW of our special collections. Um, we have strong partnerships with our faculty members, um, and we have um, dedicated partnerships between librarians and faculty, for example, in our university writing program, where the librarians are really embedded in the class, and our librarians and archivists work closely with faculty members to design um, assignments to design papers, to design group projects, to design presentations using our specialized collection so that the students might spend the whole semester going through the archives uh, of an individual they're studying or an issue they like to dig into. Um, and that's those are my favorite days in special collections is when the students present their research. Mm. So with strong partnerships with faculty. Mm. How, how long does it take for a university like GW to acquire a collection? Is it a process of negotiations? Is it, uh, how do you deal with restrictions? It, it absolutely depends. Um, sometimes it might be a gift that's been foreseen for, for many years and we're fortunate either to acquire it bit by bit um, or perhaps um, it's a gift that comes after someone passes and, and we're prepared for that. We have very robust deeds of gift um, that make sure that our donors know what we would like to do to make the collection available, but also where we will protect privacy. So we do allow, for example, for embargo periods, if folks would like to wait for something to be um, revealed, maybe, you know, 5, 10, 20 years in the future, we can make that happen. Um, and if we digitize um, a collection, we want to make sure we're not exposing any personally identifiable information that might put someone's privacy or data at risk. So um, fortunately, the field of archives, special collections is really good um, in, in ethics and privacy. Right. We'll talk about that. Could somebody um, show up as, as a donor, right? <laughs> say, okay, I've got this wonderful collection. And, and you say, well, we really don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally and, and mostly uh, we want to match uh, the donor and their collection with the cultural heritage institution. You're being, you're being very diplomatic there. Yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 you're probably saying to our listeners, don't show up on my door on tomorrow. Not at all. Not at all. We'd love to hear about it. But, 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 but there has to be things, you know, you have to make choices where you both say, okay, this is not going to work. But what I'm looking at is that there might be something that you say, wow, okay, it's not a match of what we have, but it's, it's an extension of where we might want to go. That's right. That's right. Yes. And, and you know, increasingly we are thinking about, okay, we're more than 200 years old, GW, and maybe we collected in certain areas for a while. Maybe we have enough of one kind of thing. Maybe we want to build in other areas. Maybe we want to hear more from uh, people of color. Maybe we want to hear more from marginalized groups. Maybe we want to hear more about DC activism rather than national activism. You know, Things like this. Um, maybe we want to expand our LGBTQ archives. And so uh, we want to make sure we're also tied in with the curriculum. So as our faculty mm -hmm. evolve their syllabi and their courses, we want to make sure we're aligned with that because we do so much teaching. So it's never stagnant, not at all. And we certainly may be expanding our collecting areas in the future and then sunsetting others. That happens mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, you just move from the um, special collection. You're also responsible for dealing with the university archives. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and the university is is a celebrating thing, a growing organism, um, and that consists of different components. What's in the university archives that that you would say is extremely valuable? Yeah, well, I'll try not to be partial. Everything in university <laughs> archives is valuable. That is the historical record of, of the university's history. Um, but some of the things we collect, for example, are the board of trustee minutes. Um, I mentioned embargoes earlier. Those do tend to be embargoed for quite a number of years before they're released. But um, folks could also get permission if they need to look at it a little sooner before the embargo <laughs> period is over. And the documents are trustees' decisions. Yeah. Do, do you have anything from like George Washington? We don't have anything from George Washington, the man. Although we're right. named for him, um, mm -hmm. we do not have his collections. Those are at Historical Mount Vernon. And mm -hmm. we do work very closely with our colleagues there as well. They have their own archives at Mount Vernon. But you don't have some little artifacts, something that was like on loan for Mount Vernon? Occasionally, the students will do exhibits um, mm -hmm. together with a faculty member. They might combine artifacts from the university archives and artifacts from Mount Vernon to tell a story uh, about George Washington. Mm -hmm. um, but we we typically have the the administrative papers of the university, and and as we go through processes, for example, renaming buildings, that's really where the university archives 
come in um, mm. and where our student activists um, who might put forward um, a request to rename a building will come in and do research using the archives mm. um, to help make the case. You know, I was also thinking about university um, archives when you get into like student organizations and clubs and things mm -hmm. of that sort. Is that also part of it? And that is a huge part of it. And we're working closely now with student groups who have, for example, posters to digitize, what we might call ephemera, brochures, pamphlets. So we definitely want to document um, you know, the student life at GW. We've digitized all the yearbooks, um, of course. You can flip through those on the Internet Archive. Mm -hmm. But yeah, absolutely. It's not it's not just faculty life or, or administrative life. It's, it's very much about mm -hmm. um, student life as well. Is, is there somebody who has a job, part of their job description is to to um, always be aware of various anniversary of, of university history, that this is the 50th year of such and such? Is that somebody's job? For sure. I think the Office of the President does a lot of that, development and alumni relations. Um, and our university archivist as well is, is very engaged because we like to prepare to, to celebrate when the bicentennial was a big year. It happened to be during COVID, but we had a chance to make many wonderful documentary films. Um, and that was really exciting. Mm. You know, I'm glad you said that because I remember um, when you said uh, you said archivist just a minute ago, that that's when we looked at issues of race. There were very few African-American archivists who had that mm -hmm. training. And I was wondering in terms of whether have, has that changed in terms of the field of library science? I believe that's changing and growing for sure. Um, and I think there are a lot more spaces now um, for colleagues to um, work at cultural heritage institutions that align with their with their values um, or with their own history. Um, absolutely. So whereas librarianship may have been traditionally very white and very female, that's changed a lot, certainly in the last, mm -hmm. I want to say, um, and during my career. Yeah. Yeah, I know years. about the librarians, but I know specifically about the archivists. Archivists. Yeah, archivists yeah. too, as mm -hmm. well. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've trained in the same programs as librarians. Mm -hmm. um, they all tend to receive a Master of Library and Information Studies. Mm -hmm. And I think that digitization has also really changed how we interact with archives and special collections. The ability to make digital exhibits, to remix, reuse, um, present in new formats. Our, our digital cultural heritage has really made everything so much more accessible um, and, and really deepened our learning about ourselves and our history. How do you, you know, that's part of your your responsibility for digital services. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you stay on top of that with a changing technology in terms of of course? Oh yes, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to keep on top of. So while costs may have gone down in the realm of maybe let's say storage, so we have the cloud now, and you can get storage in bulk. It's no longer on your own personal hard drive, for example, that might have come down in costs. Um, there are other areas where costs um, continue to increase for digitization. For example, we want to make sure our digital collections are accessible to those who perhaps might need assistive devices, screen readers, captioning, um, and you know, adding those resources, which we're happy to do, um, does nevertheless come with um, with costs, um, with, with people time and with technology. Um, so we, we do have to keep an eye on that. Um, we tend to ask donors if they donate a collection that they might want to be digitized, if they could also perhaps provide some monetary support for um, mm. processing and digitization. Well, in terms of, I like you use that word donors, because that's what we need here at WPFW, donors, okay? And we're hoping that people will help us in our winter fundraising drive. The number here to call to make a donation is 202-588-9739. It's 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. Um, we have a few more minutes as we um, are listening to Elizabeth Baraksa talking about, you know, Egyptology as well as what's happening over at George Washington University. I found it a very interesting um, show this morning. And so I hope that you do. And we'll call 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222. 9739 Elizabeth, you're also responsible for for what I felt was uh, I didn't know what it was about global resources. <laughs> I, I said, what is, what, what, what is that? That's like the, the you know, it's like you got Sunrise albums over there. Somebody, you know, what do you got? Global resources. What is that about? <laughs> global resources, what we call our international collections for research here in the library. And, and we collect resources in um, the languages other than English that are taught at GW. So we have robust collections and for example, Russian and Arabic and Chinese, Japanese and Korean. So our global resources is where our colleagues studying um, international politics or international languages and literatures um, can come use those resources in the vernacular. Um, and that's also a, a passion of mine. I was previously a uh, 
a librarian for Middle Eastern studies. And um, in that role, I was able to collect resources um, mm -hmm. in all the language of uh, the Middle East um, to make sure they were accessible for folks uh, who can uh, read and, and and dig into those areas and, and are looking for resources without having to travel. <laughs> mm. Well, let's, let's walk you this. And I think this might be very important to, to our listeners. Um, you were talking about expeditions. You're talking about your job description. What does is a typical day for Elizabeth, you know, with Roxa to to go through? Because, you know, you just describe a lot of different things. Okay, are you a person that's tied up in a lot of meetings? Uh, are you actually walking around the campus of GW? You know, what 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 are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, what I like to say is every day is different, and that's part of what I love. So sure, I have a lot of meetings. I have an administrative role and some budgetary responsibility, and um, I have five direct reports, and I check in with them um, bi-weekly. So um, I do meet with individuals and groups a lot, but I do also walk around the campus a lot. And to me, that's really important to sort of have my ear to the ground on um, how our students are doing, what they're learning. Um, I enjoy going to talks by visiting scholars or um taking my lunch outside and, and just enjoying campus life. So um, I got had the privilege, I got to teach for many, many years in universities. Um, and while I'm not teaching so much anymore, um, I, I do enjoy my responsibility, which is uh, for the entire library as an academic innovation organization in a way. I have to own the whole organization, as my dean likes to say. Um, and I get to make strategic decisions about where we're going to deploy our resources, um, human and financial. And, and that's really exciting because we're usually looking ahead, like you say, we're looking ahead to big anniversaries, to our next exhibits, to our next digitization project. And um, I really enjoy that strategic part of the work. You know, I was, when, when you say that, I was wondering in terms of the the problems that you may encounter in terms of um, the challenges where you were out at expeditions when we began the show and your what you were doing at Hopkins. I know that sometimes people, they enjoy their work that they're doing, but they're like saying, I wish I was back in the field. I wish I was writing books. Is that you still have a, where you're looking over your show and say, well, like, I, I, I want there's another book I would like to write. Absolutely. There's another book in me and I'll probably never, never let that go. You know, so TBD, hopefully I can come back on your show with another book one day. Um, I do miss, I, I miss the teaching. I miss the the field work. Um, I, I miss writing, but I do a different kind of writing now. So I actually enjoy writing, for example, grant proposals or writing for the web. Um, so writing for the public, which is a different kind of writing than, than my research uh, monograph writing. So um, I've enjoyed the, you know, the opportunity to, to mm. switch into something a little bit different in my career. But Egyptology will always be my first, my mm. first love, my vocation. Um, and, but libraries are very close second and, and really a wonderful career path. Well, let me ask you, you know, we, we, we went and you, you, we talked about you being in charge of Universal Archives, um, the global resources, digital, everything. When you got your job at GW, were the things that you say, I have no idea what this is all about? <laughs> you know, I'm sure I, there were. Yes. I'll, I'll, sit, I'll sit in at the next meeting and just nod my head. <laughs> oh, I think I sat in on many meetings for months, simply nodding my head and taking copious notes and then learning the internal lingo and acronyms. Um, yeah, I say that because, you know, when on a serious note, when, when you look at your responsibility with digital services, you know, it, it's like a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. It was a ton to learn. And, and I was privileged to work on something called the Digital Library of the Middle East just before mm -hmm. I came to GW. So an open access aggregated digital library of Middle Eastern cultural heritage. Um, it was incubated um, through grants from the Mellon Foundation, and I, I was fortunate to be a part of the early days of that digital library. So I learned a lot through that. That really helped me out when I got to GW to understand our digitization um, and things like metadata and crosswalks and platforms and, and all that inside lingo. But yeah, I have a pretty big portfolio here. So I, I do switch between university archives, special collections, global resources, um, and another area I oversee, which is undergraduate fellowships and research. Um, um, so supporting our undergraduates going for nationally competitive fellowships. So it, it's really this this broad, uh, diverse portfolio that I just love every day. Mm -hmm. uh, Let me ask you a question that you probably may have some some insight on, and 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 I guess it's a real concern. Uh, if you look internationally, we're talking about libraries here. Mm -hmm. um, 
what is the condition, like, say, of libraries, like, say, on the continent of Africa or, or in the Middle East, in terms of dealing with things of preservation, climate mm -hmm. changes, mm -hmm. um, staffing, okay. you know, technology, and interfacing with, say, you know, um, mm -hmm. Europe or the United States? What's happening in terms of, like, say, the Middle East or Africa? Sure, it varies a lot. Um, certainly, um, air conditioning um, and climate control is a, is a major concern um, all over the world, but especially in areas where we're seeing more extreme heat or weather events. So um, most libraries um, and, and museums and artifacts should be at 70% Fahrenheit and 40% relative humidity to keep those artifacts safe and preserved for the future. And that can be impossible in certain conditions. So that's always a concern. And I think um, educating the next generation of, of librarians and archivists is really key, but there are countries, for example, Egypt, that don't have those master's programs um, at their own universities, and they do need to turn to uh, maybe more Western or European or U.S. programs um, for those master's programs. And um, I, I think there's you know opportunities there. Um, there's a lot of international collaboration and international library organizations um, that collaborate on best practices um, and on the, uh, the best kinds of you know building use um, and climate control systems. So um, it is really an international group of, of colleagues. Yeah. Um, but of course, there's going to be areas where it's more challenging, um, especially to keep that preservation going than others. Mm. You know, um, you're talking about, you know, um, air conditioning, things of that sort. I know that we look at GW and we look at, you know, the Gelman Library, you guys are going to be closed, you know, mm -hmm. for a couple of months. What are some of the things that are taking place and how important are these new developments at, at your library? Absolutely. We are excited um, that we will be getting a new um, HVAC system um, coming up over the next three years. So it's a major project. We're a seven-story library, um, and it, it's time. It's just simply time for new air handlers, new air exchange systems to ensure that um, our staff spaces and our collection spaces are as climate controlled as, as they can be. Um, we're fortunate also to be a part of the Washington Research Libraries Consortium, which has a shared collections facility in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Um, and there it is uh, the best of the best climate control. And that is where um, we keep most of our specialized collections. Um, they can get here in a day for any researcher who needs them. Um, but we're fortunate to be a part of a consortium that also takes um, preservation very seriously so that even though Gelman will be closed for a few weeks this summer, we can continue to circulate books through a grab-and-go system and have our consortium partners also with us in, in lending um, and keeping our collections climate control. Mm. You know, sometimes when we look at like research, and this is my, my, my last question to you, uh, Elizabeth, um, we sometimes, if funding is not there, we set back a, a few years. Uh, when we look at the libraries at GW, was there any setbacks because of the pandemic? Oh, yes, definitely. I think um, going remote during the pandemic and, and remote learning and remote work um, was a really rapid change um, that that was scary and stressful for all of us. Um, and I think making sure our researchers understood why our reading room wasn't going to be open for a while, but that we would do our best once we could come back to the building to, for example, digitize collections and, and um, provide remote research materials and remote consultations. Um, that was a pivot we did really successfully. So um, there was a disruption in the on-site services for sure. But I think we also learned a lot about what we were capable of and what we could provide digitally digitally. Um, and we've maintained um, some of the, the changes we made during the pandemic um, going forward because our patrons enjoyed it. Okay, well, I hope our patrons have been enjoying our show, our patrons here at WPFW. Um, you're listening today to my guest, Elizabeth Waratska. Um, she is the author of Female Figurines from the Moot Precinct Context and Ritual Function. And she's also the Associate Dean at George Washington University Libraries and Academic Innovation. You've been listening to her during our fundraising drive here at the station. And I hope that you've been thinking about making a donation this morning. The number here, once again, is the call is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739. I want to thank you for being my guest. You know, I, I can't wait to see you again. <laughs> you know. Thank uh, you, Ethelbert. Can't wait to see you here. Okay. <laughs> all right. So I want to wish you well and, 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 and tell all my friends there that I said hello. Okay. I will. Thank you, okay. Thanks, everyone. All right. Okay, so we're hearing Elizabeth Wawatska. Um, as I mentioned, she is the author of Female Figurines from the Moot 
precinct context and ritual function. My name is Yetha Brett Miller. The show's on the margin. The station's WPFW 89.3 FM. <laughs> Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised, and yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. From February 4th through the 24th, we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our Winter Pledge Drive and ensuring that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. On Friday, February 23rd, 8 p.m., Strathmore presents prolific drummer, producer, and composer Micaiah McRaven. Blending jazz, hip-hop, and electronic elements into a modern, beat-driven sound, his latest album, In These Times, is the triumphant finale of a project more than seven years in the making. Inspired by both broader cultural struggles and his personal experience as a product of a multinational, working-class musician community, McRaven has a unique gift for collapsing space, destroying borders, and blending past, present, and future into post-genre, jazz-rooted, 21st century folk music. Micaiah McRaven, In These Times, One Night Only, Friday, February 23rd. Tickets and details available at strathmore.org. WPFW, Building a Better World, one broadcast at a time. The 15th annual Mid-Atlantic Jazz Festival swings hard on President's Day weekend, February 16th through the 18th at the Hilton Rockville, 1750 Rockville Pike, Rockville, Maryland. This year, they honor the grandeur of the big band era, featuring Dolfeo Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. Grammy Award-winning vocalist Lisa Fisher with the Orrin Evans Captain Black Big Band and the incomparable Kurt Elling with the Mid-Atlantic Jazz Orchestra. Other performers include drummers Bernard Harper, Herlin Riley, and Marvin Smitty-Smith, vocalist Renee Marie, and vibraphonist Warren Wolf. 
Full schedule and ticket information available at www.midatlanticjazzfestival.org. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Collective Voices and the Francis Gregory Neighborhood Library invite you to celebrate Black history through poetry from 3.30 to 5 o'clock p.m. Saturday, February 24th at 3660 Alabama Avenue Southeast, Washington, D.C. as they present African Americans and the Arts. Collective Voices, whose members are Lady Di, Sister Joy, Bernardo, and Billy O'Kara, are known for their messages of social consciousness, inspiration, and empowerment. In addition to their original poetry, the celebration will also feature an exhibit by Washington-area visual artist Jason Keene and conclude with a book signing. This event is free and open to all ages. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. First man to die for the flag wing.